This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. I've got Vivian on the line to tell us all about the show tonight. Hey, Viv, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Andy. How are you going? Salut, Babette. Ah, (laughs) yeah, I'll add that at the end as well. (laughs) Yes, say it again to her. She's always listening. And listeners, if you're listening to, to us and you like what you hear, please communicate with us by sending us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Look, tonight's show is about a very unpopular idea, and I'm expecting quite a lot of slack because no one wants to talk about this. But it struck me that we're always pointing the finger at the cashed-up climate deniers, you know, and the fossil fuel companies. And and yet I think we are all in denial, and um, I don't think we even know our own carbon footprint. We just think, oh, Mm. something dreadful, and we don't look into it. And when I went on that... um, uh, spirit of Tra- Tasmania ferry, they said they didn't know what the carbon footprint of one oh, wow. and yeah, remember and I asked them and then asked them on the return trip and they said they stayed in quiet and the captain said he didn't know that they would get back to me but the company has not got back to me um, and I guess it's because you know, it's probably they don't not want to know. Good. Nobody wants to yeah, know. Or, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ignorance And I think it's, it's even hard to find out what the you know, per capita emissions are for Australians. We know it's high compared to the rest of the world. But on one um, website, I found it was 25 metric tonnes per person. And then I think it's more likely to be about 18 metric tonnes. But, you know, Europeans and English people have eight metric tonnes. Yeah, and they've got here Bangladesh only one metric tonne per person. Oh, well, of course. But, you know, comparable countries to us, you know, like... (laughs) Yeah, well, Bangladesh, of course, they, they can catch up a few emissions on us. But um, uh, one of the people we've interviewed over the years is Professor Kevin Anderson. And, and a lot of people have said to me they, they're very impressed by the fact that he doesn't fly. And he said, look, our generation has got to do something. It might not be for every generation in the future, but this generation in the rich countries has to make a sacrifice. Yeah. So tonight we're exploring how making everyone aware of their carbon footprint just for travel and for electricity, for example, in buildings, would create a massive innovative pressure and pressure to decarbonise. And and the idea I had was carbon rations. And I talked to Stan Cox in Kansas and his son Paul Cox in Copenhagen, and they've written a book called How the World Breaks. And there's also another book by Paul called uh, about the feasibility of rationing, and it's called Any Way You Slice It. Okay. And so I, I hope listeners will bear with me and not just turn off because they think, oh, see, I, I, people shut me down when I talk about carbon rations. They don't want to talk about it and they mm. treat it as a stupid idea. But I don't think it's stupid. I just think we don't want to think about it. Yeah. And um, you know, we can't even imagine how governments would administer it, seeing mm. as they're still handing out subsidies to fossil yeah. fuels. But, but it's an idea we've got to try and um, tease out and so look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but before we start, I'd like to ask the listeners um, over Christmas to think about donating to two really good causes that have come up during the year for us, and I know one of them is very urgent, or they're both urgent, really, but one um, I've had many emails from is the Wangan Jagalingu traditional owners up in Queensland, and they're in the Galilee Basin, that's their traditional land, and they're fighting to stop Adani, and they've got a court case coming up in March so if listeners would like to, you know, yeah, help them with on. their fighting fund, 
uh, they can donate, and it's called um, the Wangan Jagalingu um, uh, Defence Fund, and I'll spell it because that might be not easy for listeners. If they've got a pencil already, it's W-A-N-G-A-N-J-A-G-A-L-I-N-G-O-U, wangangjagalingu.com.au. Cool. Perhaps we can add that to the podcast list yeah, as okay, well. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll add that. That's a good idea. Um, the other, the other one that I'm, you know, very aware of, and listeners will probably will because it's all in the news about this terrible refugee crisis in Bangladesh. But we've covered the Bangladesh environmental crisis caused by un, unusual heavy rains this year, and so they're really, you know, the people, the Bangladesh government, the Bangladesh people, are really pushed now with over half a million, something like 800,000 refugees coming in. So I just thought if they'd like to keep Bangladesh in mind and you can donate to the Red Crescent or the Red Cross and take some of the pressure off the Bangladeshi people, you know, keep them company in the terrible situation that mm. geography has placed them in um, and, and and the Wangan Jagalingu. So thanks very much, Andy. I'm, I'm no worries. hearing um, Stan Cox and Paul Cox and I hope listeners will give us some feedback. Sounds good. All right, good talk to you, Viv, and I'll get that started. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. No worries. Bye-bye. And here we go. This is Stan Cox. Enjoy. Stan Cox is the author of Any Way You Slice It, and he's the research coordinator at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. I was looking for someone who had researched the use of rationing as a way of decarbonising society. It's not a new idea, but it's not popular, and I haven't found anyone I can talk to about it, except when I found this book, I thought I can talk to Stan. When people talk about a climate emergency, they say, let's put this on a war footing, and my mind goes back to the victory gardens and food rations and petrol rations and coupons for luxury goods that are now the folklore of World War II. Although times were tough then, everyone shared the load, and I'm rather nostalgic for that. But it would be different for our era, and carbon, coal, oil and gas are not scarce yet. They are really scarce resources because we can't use them. We should leave most of them under the ground to avoid four degrees of warming. But I think there's a transition mentally that we have to make to treat them as scarce resources. So before you turn off the radio listeners, just indulge me in this thought experiment with Stan Cox to talk about rationing carbon. Welcome, Stan. Good to be with you, Vivian. First of all, what's the weather like where you are in Kansas? Beautiful today. It was about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. It's That's pretty standard for this time of year in the 21st century. It, earlier, it would have been colder than that. Okay, you're in autumn now. What sort of crops do you grow around where you are? Well, we're right in the middle of Kansas, which is uh, known as the wheat state. And so um, it's mainly wheat, soybeans, uh, maize, and sorghum. I think I'll probably talk to you at another time about the other work you do, but let's get on to rationing. At the moment, climate-conscious people voluntarily limit their carbon footprint, and I wanted to know, would it help to mainstream this by giving a personal carbon allowance card to people that they deduct points every time they bought petrol or took a train trip or a plane ride, and it would just come up on their card that they, their points had been deducted and there'd be a limit on how much they could have. Tell us about that. Well, yes, a, a system like that would become necessary if we decide as a a society to 
uh, put an, an absolute annual ceiling on the amount of emissions of emissions that are going to be produced, and, and, and that's what the the systems that have been proposed for personal allowances start out with this ceiling, and it's a ceiling that declines year by year until you reach uh, uh, zero in the society, giving society a t- time to develop more renewable energy sources, etc. So, so this contrast to, say, a carbon uh, tax or uh, cap-and-trade systems and so forth, because it puts an absolute restriction on the quantity of emissions. And so that's where the, the uh, World War II example you cited is very relevant. In that case, as you said, that was an involuntary restriction on the amount of resources, that, especially energy, that we had access to. And so, and this would be the same thing as a voluntary cap on the amount of energy we're using. Once you do that, the next thing you have to do is ensure that everyone gets a fair share. Each household would get a free of charge certain uh, quantity of uh, emission credits. The private sector companies would have to go to an auction and uh, bid for and, and pay for their emissions credits. Right. Well, look, economists tell us that if we suppress demand, then the economy will stagnate first and then unemployed employment will follow, it'll be chaos. And they're terrified of that. And I think that accounts for the pushback and the denialism that we're experiencing in the last 20 years. So talking about rationing is really taboo. And I'd like to know what your answer is to those people who say this would crash our economy. Well, what they're uh, really uh, concerned about is the crashing of profits that corporations are making. Uh, it's well documented now that the for several decades now in, in this country and in, in other countries, I'd, uh, I'd be surprised if it weren't the case in uh, Australia as well, that that the amount of uh, growth in in wealth that that has occurred over several decades has the benefits of that have not gone to the the great majority of people they've gone to the the so-called one percent and to corporate cash coffers and and so forth but Wages, salaries for non-managerial jobs, the real value of those has not increased. So we don't need to be burning through resources to generate more and more wealth when right now we're not, most of us aren't uh, benefiting from that uh, anyway. What we have to search for is uh, sufficiency so that everybody ha- has what they need and then what's left over we you know we th- that is shared fairly and then you know we can all decide what what to do with our uh, our share of of the energy that's there Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognized climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions not problems Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au We know that it works if you depress the economy a little bit. We saw it in 2008 when there was a financial crisis. I think emissions globally went down by about 13%. 
and uh, emissions are obviously linked to growth. <clears throat> yet the uh, countries of the north, let's say the capitalist countries, or you know just the rich countries, they are all having a mantra of jobs and growth, jobs and growth. And I wonder how we can manage this. It's so important to have this conversation. And I, as I said, I can't find many people even contemplate it. They can't think of the triggers. We just want to hang on. Even even ordinary citizens who know about climate change, uh, they're not deniers, but they sort of can't see anything more than just personally lowering their carbon footprint. They can't see how they would press the levers of this kind of managed dissent, which would not involve unemployment, chaos, and misery? Yes, it's one of the thorniest questions facing us, especially in in, in electoral democracies where a politician can't expect to get too far in an election campaign promising people that uh, you're going to have less energy, you're you're going to be driving and, and flying less. But they, I think it's important to emphasize what the so-called degrowth movement does, that the quality of, of life is not necessarily linked to material abundance. And many, many studies have, uh, have shown this, that as gross domestic product of countries increases, the uh, so-called happiness index does not increase and that it, it is not related. It, it doesn't grow along with GDP, that in a society that is expected to keep growing and that is competitive, greater amount of income or wealth doesn't uh, make us happy. What can make us happy is that ours is growing faster than uh, the people around us. But of course, that in, in a society like that, everybody can't be happy. One thing polls always show is if they ask people, would you rather have more income or would you rather have more free, more leisure time and, and spend less of your life working? And the, the latter, leisure time, always wins out. And so the, the degrowth people keep emphasizing that, that there would definitely need to be a shortening of the work week, everyone having more uh, leisure time, because there wouldn't be enough energy to run everybody for the amount of uh, hours we work today, and we wouldn't need all that stuff that's being produced. I I can't see how you'd sell it, though. Uh, You know, to me, it's a moral question that we have to do this decarbonisation in favour of the countries where they do not have the emissions we have. You have to have, you know, for example, labellings on tickets so you under, you understand what you're spending in terms of carbon all the time. That you, this conscious, I, That's why I thought the rationing would be good because you'd see it. You'd see it come up every time you filled your car. You'd see it when you took a plane trip and you'd realise what your what your um, footprint was and that might be the first couple of years and then the, in that time when you've got the majority of the population really aware then you might, it's like the packaging on cigarettes, you know, with the horrific photos, that eventually it penetrates the society, what, what, what you're doing. I sort of feel you can't just say you'll have more leisure because I know a lot of people who are retired and they're spending their retirement travelling as much as possible. Their carbon footprint <laughs> must be going through the roof because now they've got the leisure, they're retired, they feel they deserve it. And um, you know, I, I just don't, I, th- I think we are in a crisis situation. It is a climate emergency. And I've been talking recently to someone in Bangladesh who was talking about climate criminals. And they're the big corporations and con- 
companies that our countries, you know, really foster. In Australia, we're just about to open the greatest coal mine, you know, huge coal mine with the Adani Corporation. Our government's behind it, and we, of course, are protesting about that, but the government's behind it. So I feel getting these rationing schemes across a broad number of people, you have to overcome that selfishness first, but... I don't think leisure, more leisure will, will really cut it. What do you think about the sort of moral argument? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think uh, absolutely there needs to be a, a moral argument and and uh, basically uh, scaring people as well. I think, once again, the, the case you cited of, of World War II, rationing was widely accepted, almost embraced uh, at that time. There, you know, there would be cheating here and there, but it didn't amount to very much in the in the grand scheme of things. And people you know, cheerfully accepted it. And as you said, there were uh, victory gardens and so forth. And, and the reason was that they saw that the world faced an uh, existential threat. And so the, I think the question is how to convince people when they may feel just this very, very uh, gradual change in the climate to convince them that we have to do something very soon or this is going to be a different planet and it's not going to be a nice one to live on and there's going to be horrific disasters and disease and, and dis- disruption of society that if they think having lower economic growth or not having business run as smoothly as it does today is a disaster, just wait uh, until you see the, the results of the climate change chaos that's coming. You know, we, in recent book of mine that with uh, my son Paul, we, which is about natural disasters, we asked a lot of people, what do, do you think there can be a disaster big enough and, and horrific enough that it will convince people we have to address climate change? And it, it seems that probably by the time a, a catastrophe that big happened, it would probably be too late to do something about emissions. So we can't count on uh, some big showy catastrophe. We, we, we have to point to people in places around the world who are already suffering the the impact of what, what we've done to the atmosphere and they're living the future that we're we're all going to be. I really like the idea of carbon rations for consciousness raising of everybody and that feeling of fairness within a country, you know, so that we know that no matter how much money we have, we can still only have that same carbon budget personally. Industry's got their own budget and we're all working towards a common goal. But the next level up is the global one, the United Nations level. And after two decades of climate talks at that level, I don't think we are much closer to sharing the burden of climate change and in your book about disasters, I, I took a leaf out of that and I rang up someone in Bangladesh because you said in your book that uh, really Bangladesh is doing really well in climate adaptation. They've put in a huge number of measures to protect their population from what is, you know, they are on the front line of climate change. And so I interviewed someone. He was the most impressive speaker I've ever spoken to, really, because they were so much, they had such awareness and they had such community richness you know they had this resource within the community that they could call on and people just volunteered to help and now they've got a refugee crisis of half a million people coming in from uh, Burma next door so this has added to the floods they're already 
having, which were not reported in our press hardly at all in comparison to your Hurricane Harvey. And, you know, it was nothing in comparison. Our, our TV media just showed that and they never mentioned Bangladesh, which was far more dramatic. So I think the consciousness of people that we were all trying, you know, we were all not just, you know, greeny kind of people who, who just voluntarily do it, but everyone, that you just have a, a, a limit. I just think that would have a huge consciousness-raising effect. And I wondered, would you think that knowing more, and also through the media, that media should do more about highlighting what is happening in the uh, global south. Oh, right. Uh, the news media here anyway, there's very little of, of substance in it about the climate emergency we face. If there's anything, it's just uh, hand-wringing over Donald Trump and his henchmen in the government being climate deniers. This was a big problem before, before they showed up. And I know starting in the 90s, there was a, a pretty strong effort by some organizations in the UK to have a, uh, this kind of a, a system implemented there. And they, I mean, they got to the point that Member of Parliament actually sponsored a bill to be considered. You know, of course, it never came up for a vote, but they actually were able to debate doing this carbon allowance scheme in, in the UK and in Parliament. And so since then, there, there are organizations who have based in the UK and in Ireland who have been continuing to um, push this. But overall, the biggest, the idea that has attracted the most attention is, is a carbon tax. I, I think that's not going to do the job. First of all, it's indirect. It doesn't put an absolute ceiling on and it, it just... Uh, is kind of hoping that the market will uh, will take care of it. And, of course, it's also highly unfair because those with plenty of money, uh, they, they'll hardly hardly feel the difference. They, they can carry on with their lives. And if it's, But if it's a strong enough tax to actually bring down emissions, it's going to go very hard on people at the bottom of the economy. Yes. Ten, nine, eight. Sometimes that's just how it goes Three, two, one Get out before it blows You're listening to Radio 3CR and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. We're talking to author Stan Cox about carbon rations. Now tell us a bit more, just the specifics of that British Parliament. They they did a, a feasibility study, and I think the end, the conclusion was that this is an idea before its time. So let's hope the time is coming. And uh, just tell us what that TEQ uh, scheme embodied. What well, just the the bare bones of it? Right. Well, as um, as I described earlier, there would be an annual ceiling on carbon emissions, and that would mainly apply to use of electricity and other fuels. And yes. well, well, if you focus first on residences, it would be basically be whatever you pay for in your utility bills and whatever you spend on vehicle fuel. Since those were the main sources of emissions, they went after those first. The private sector, as I said, would get, I think, 40%, or no, no, it would get 60% of the total emissions. And so these would be utilities, manufacturers, etc. They, they would bid for those, so they would have to buy their credits. And then the other 40% of credits would be divided 
equally among all the uh, households in the country. So then once a month, everybody would have a carbon account just like you have a bank account now. And uh, with every every time you paid the utility bill or bought petrol for your vehicle, you would presumably be on a card. You would have so many points deducted from your account. And, and if you used up all of your credits before the end of the month and you, and you had to get to work and couldn't drive your car, you could buy additional credits out of the pool. And these would be credits that other people who had excess didn't need all of theirs. They would sell them into the pool. They would get some money and then you would buy those. So that would be the the way that it would account for different uh, people's energy needs. So if you were um, a poorer person and you still had to use your car for your work or to travel a long way to work every day, how would you be provided for that you wouldn't have to be spending more than you could afford to just run your car? Right, yeah, that's why I have not been completely happy with this idea of uh, buying and selling credits. I think that adjustment for uh, requirements would have to be done in in some other way, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how, but to to do it in some other way than, than with, with payment. Yes. Um, and, and they did talk about, in, in these um, um, programs, they did talk about having uh, uh, programs to assist people who couldn't afford to uh, insulate their homes better or and other, other things that would reduce their uh, requirement for, uh, for energy. And, of course, to have better public transportation so people wouldn't have to yeah, there would be no, you would get no uh, emission credits charged if for riding any sort sort of public transportation. That would only be for uh, personal vehicles, so it yeah. would um, you know, provide an incentive for that. I think Professor Kevin Anderson is sort of famous in this area, and we've interviewed him a few times. Right. He's from Manchester University, and people always say to me after those interviews, all the immense... The interesting things he says, the one thing that sticks out for them is the fact that he says he doesn't fly, and so he goes by train, even he's gone to China for, to a conference by train from England. So, you know, he's a, he's a living example of, of what, what you can do if you're really committed, and he says he does it to give himself credibility, not to continue just flying everywhere and just taking taking it all for granted and talking talking up climate action. Um, but he said one of the advantages of personal carbon allowances would be that it would get the middle class people involved and they are the innovative class. They've got the extra time and uh, education and so on maybe and, and imagination to just innovate and they would think of a way around it. They would think of adaptations and that's what we want. We want to get the whole society putting its thinking cap on about this subject rather than a lot of people just saying, oh, I'm so depressed about climate change and they're taking a flight somewhere for a holiday. It's just not good to have the society switched off as if it's an impossible problem. And I don't know how long the carbon rationing would last, but as you say, it may only last until the renewable energy would be established and then you might, there's obviously, you know, centuries of problems ahead of us, if, even if we get on top of this particular problem. But I thought Kevin Anderson was good about that. Do you think the middle class is needed or we need to get a different group of people involved in this rather than the small group? Well, I, yes, I certainly 
agree that the best way to stimulate original thinking and innovation in, in this area is to have people facing limits. And once you can't count on abundant uh, energy, then that, that's when a, a lot of deep original thinking can, can go on. I was on a radio talk show one time talking about this, and there was they had another uh, author on there who had written a, a book about uh, abundance and how we can figure our way out of this mess and everybody's going to have a whole cornucopia of goods and, and resources. And so I was thinking, oh, yeah, I don't really want to get into a uh, fight with this guy. But he, he actually, on the, on the program, um, really got into it. He was saying... Uh, I think we should have rationing because that that holds people's feet to the fire and it really stimulates thinking and you know that that may be what we need to get us to solve these problems. So even the cornucopians uh, recognize that uh, that scarcity focuses the mind. Yeah. The only the only course of action, as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and I, you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them. <laughs> and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. We're talking to author Stan Cox about carbon rations, and that was George Monbiot. George Monbiot uh, has just put out a new book, and he focuses on altruism, how really humans are not the way we see them on television and in a lot of the... A lot of our culture seems to, to be telling us how selfish and how mean and how brutal and cruel we are, but he says, really, if you just look around you, everybody's helping somebody. Most of the people we know are extremely kind and good. That's why they're that, they are our friends. And uh, he says, you just have to plug into, we need to plug into that, this um, belief in altruism and belief in community, restore our communities, a lot of which have become very fragmented in big cities and in, in the advanced Capitalist economies, you know, it's an um, atomization of people, but he says we need to restore communities, and that is restoring a sort of politics, too, of can-do, possibility. And I've, I've definitely heard that from the Bangladeshi speaker, speaker who said, well, that can be, we're very rich in our communities here. You know, we help each other. We have to. And uh, I feel that we need to manage this energy descent, and we need to think of innovative and... Um, creative ways and, and that extra leisure you mentioned is one thing but I think also the extra feeling of belonging and doing something together that, that feeling that probably they did have in the Second World War that they all uh, worked together you could be very I could be very Pollyanna-ish about it but you know I'm sure it wasn't perfect but, it, but there was a, uh, people are nostalgic for that time when they worked together 
So um, I think uh, it is a climate crisis, and Monbiot says, well, plug into the altruism and remind us. We can. I think rationing would remind us that we can actually work and share. He's on to something there. I think we really have to keep pushing that idea, especially in in America. The past year and a half, you would get the impression that it's become a kind of barbaric dog-eat-dog world that we've got 50% of the country hating the other 50%. And I think some of that is true. But if there's some way to to convince people that, look, we're all in this together, there's a much bigger threat out there than, than each other that we're going to have to work together. But right now, it's pretty grim. We, you know, we've had several major disasters this year and the one that nothing has been accomplished in recovering from it is uh, Puerto Rico and after that uh, disaster it it was something like 50% they did a poll 50% of the respondents were saying no we shouldn't we we shouldn't help the people of Puerto Rico and then it turned out they were the same 50% who didn't realize that Puerto Ricans are Americans and so once they were told that then they were more willing to get help but that's that's not a good criterion for caring about people whether or not they're members of your country or not it's it's terrible. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stan. So I think we, we've we've tried to look at it, but I think we, it's still in the an idea before its time category. <laughs> but the cultural change that Monbiot is talking about, that thing, I think that is actually happening on the ground in your country and here and, and in Europe too. Lots of people are realising right. they need they do need each other in lots of ways. And, and out of that, my, this idea, which you've researched so well, you've made it quite clear in your book, I hope it gets a, a wider discussion eventually and maybe is implemented. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Stan Cox, who's the author of a book called Any Way You Slice It, and he's been talking to us from Kansas. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5 p.m. on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. I grew up on this mountain Came back here to dwell Maybe have a family, plant some corn and dig a well I was all done with the army Back from Vietnam Where I learned how to shoot a rifle And how to set a bomb I grew up on this mountain It's in my very soul So when the company moved next door Started digging for the coal Tearing up the mountain with drillers and drag lines, I knew then what needed to happen to those mines. Ten, nine, eight, sometimes that's just how it goes. Three, two, one, get out before it blows. He was sleeping on duty through the night I stepped gently on the ground Stayed well out of sight I tied sticks to the equipment 
switch the timer on And I knew that in ten seconds These dozers would be gone Ten, nine, eight Sometimes that's just how it goes Three, two, one Get out before it blows To the west The cops were on my trail And I figured it was best And I figured I did my small part To make the world free In my humble manner In East Tennessee Ten, nine, eight Sometimes that's just how it goes Three, two, one Get out before it blows Ten, nine, eight Sometimes that's just how it goes Three, two, one Get out before it blows Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now we are going to Copenhagen to talk to Paul Cox about Bangladesh. Paul Cox is an anthropologist and he is the author with Stan Cox of How the World Breaks. It's a marvellous book about disasters around the world and it looks of some of the ones which are intensified by climate change. His first chapter is on bushfires in Australia, but tonight I want him to begin with Bangladesh because that country is out of the media but it is dealing with very bad flood damage since August and the sudden influx of refugees from Myanmar on its eastern border. It's exactly what climate change is going to do around the world. It's exacerbating um, really other sort of tensions and they are dealing with it very well. India has built a security fence with armed guards right around Bangladesh's border uh, for fear of climate refugees. Yet Paul Cox's book praises this country. Well, I think uh, it's certainly, while they are absolutely undeniably facing uh, changes and consequences from climate change, uh, the issues of cyclones and flooding are have, have been something that they have always had. And to a large extent, the systems that they have in place have really started being worked on after a cyclone in 1970, which was one of the worst disasters on record anywhere that uh, killed more than half a million Bangladeshis. And uh, that was the beginning of a, uh, setting up a cyclone preparedness program um, that was done, uh, conversely to how something like that would be done in Europe, was done without really much of a budget and very little uh, physical infrastructure, but a lot of um, preparedness uh, communication with local people and with the uh, meteorological department. Um, and that's really been the route that they've... They have done a lot of kind of physical uh, preparedness as well, but uh, 
there's always been a much greater focus on just um, communicating risks and how people themselves uh, deal with risks and deal with preparedness. Yes, I'm going to add a podcast to a link to a podcast um, to a video to this podcast, and it shows people going around with loud hailers in villages and using every form of communication to alert people to higher ground. And then at the higher parts, you see these big buildings which have room for livestock as well as for about two thousand people. And in the dry part of the year, they're used as schools and community halls. But they put in that sort of infrastructure, and I loved it the way they brought livestock because I think you said in your book people wouldn't move unless they could take their cattle and their goats and so on. Yes, I mean, when that's absolutely the basis of uh, someone's livelihood. It's, it's not a small consideration uh, whether you can leave or not if you have animals to look after because if you make the wrong call, then, you know, you, you can come back home again afterwards, but there's not really going to be much of anything there for you. No. Well, you said the Global South is adopting an ecosystem approach to work with with nature and instead of putting in sort of hard barriers they're just uh, doing things to allow the rivers to flood if they have to flood and so on. Can you describe what that means for coastal Bangladesh? Well yes this is an approach that's really uh, it has been followed in the north and the south but in somewhat different ways and it's been a big turn since really since the 1980s towards trying to find solutions that don't just involve building seawalls and concrete barriers and cement flood channels uh, because there have been proven to be a lot of ways in which those uh, can go very wrong and there's i think there's a lot of appeal both in the results of what has been done with this sort of more absorptive approach but uh, it's also just it, it's an easy sell if you're trying to get money from a government or from a development organization for a project because it sounds really good uh, taking an ecological approach and one of the biggest ways in fairly recent times that this has been done places like Bangladesh and in uh, coastal environments has been around planting of mangrove forests or preserving or replanting of mangrove forests uh, where they've because they around the world they've have been disappearing for quite a long time. And this really happened after the Indian Ocean uh, tsunami when there was a lot of research about different effects in areas um, with or without mangroves. And it became kind of a big, I guess you could say, a development fad. A lot of organizations were supporting this in a lot of different countries. And and in as much as it led to preservation and restoration of a lot of mangrove areas that were in danger of being destroyed or had been destroyed, that was quite good. I think the results of the research subsequently on how effective this has really been are very mixed. There are a lot of nuances to it. And for the most part, what has been shown is where mangrove is preserved or restored where it already was, you see the best results. And where there are kind of attempts to replicate the, just the, the storm effects, uh, protection effects of it, for instance, by planting other species of trees or by planting in new areas on shores where uh, they, they hadn't been before, um, it has been less successful. So I think, and I think that's a common theme with a lot of the ecological approaches when almost always the best effects come when we can manage to preserve what's already there or repair what's been degraded rather than trying to kind of start from scratch and create something that works kind of like a natural environment. Just go back to Bang- Bangladesh for a minute. You said it's the Netherlands without a budget. <laughs> the, the Netherlands is another place that we got into a bit in the book and I uh, spent a little time in Rotterdam here and uh, it's quite interesting because I, I think anyone who has looked into adapting to climate change, adapting to climate risks or disasters, water-related disasters in general, 
has probably come across the Netherlands quite quickly because they have kind of a really uh, global brand and that sort of thing. And uh, it's very much based on the history of the Netherlands and the fact that it would be mostly underwater if it wasn't for Dutch engineering. And uh, so they can very legitimately claim to have quite a lot of experience in this. But part of that is also that they the amount of money that they can invest per, per acre of Dutch land is fairly enormous compared with a lot of other countries. And uh, interestingly, since now that one of their exports really is this kind of engineering solution to water risks, then it's kind of turned into a situation where to some extent their own economy and ability to continue investing money and protecting themselves is related to exporting their expertise uh, to other countries. Tonight our guest is Paul Cox. He is the author of a book with his father, Stan Cox, called How the World Breaks. It's about disasters around the world, many of which are now being intensified by fossil fuels. Economists seem to be telling us that without growth and more consumption, the economy will collapse. Uh, they fear that any restraint on production will be worse even than a flood or hurricane of the most enormous size. You said this in your book, that that's what they fear. And at the moment, the best we can do, I cynically would say, is keep the victims out of the news, as the Bangladeshi news has not been really in our media at all since August. You just Google Bangladesh floods 2017, and the last report is August. Well, you know, a lot must have been happening since then, and uh, I just think it's terrible that we don't hear about it because it's, well, it's interesting to begin with, but it's it's something that we need to be reaching out to them about. And that uh, Bangladeshi climate scientist I spoke to, he said we need to make the top 90 climate criminals pay. It's not a victimless mm. crime, you know, he said to me. And I wondered, what do you think is the best way? Yes, well, I think he's got a pretty good idea. <laughs> I think that it's really, there's a point at which you do have to look at it in terms of climate justice. And uh, But I think that there are a lot of other narratives and a lot of other ways of looking at disaster that to some extent are being put in the way of that, that that the people who whose primary interest is keeping economic growth on track that there are other it's quite useful for them to have other stories to say okay well no when when a disaster happens it's really because of these other dynamics that are happening locally or it's really because of lack of preparedness or because we need to build a, a dam here or we need to build a wall here the price that bangladeshis are paying is is directly linked to activities of companies and and uh, entities very far away all over the world who were a long ways from it, that being uh, how the majority of the world sees the situation but I think uh, maybe more and more we are seeing it as just basically unfair. I think one of the problems is the concept of natural disaster. It, it dies hard. You know in your book you talked mm. about a fire we had in the Blue Mountains outside Sydney and in, this is your book How the World Breaks and we had a Greens member of Parliament called Adam Bant and he, he called out our Prime Minister 
Minister Tony Abbott. He called him a climate criminal for the policies which Tony Abbott had been putting about, which cut our carbon tax, for example, and cut back on our climate science mm-hmm. and all of that. And so Adam Bantz called him a climate criminal and connected those bushfires with those policies. And people were outraged and condemned him and said he was very insensitive. And I wonder if this concept of natural disaster is in, in our way because we're so used to it. It's so much it goes back to biblical times. You know, we just expect these acts of God to just come and wipe us out. But now it's us feeding in uh, quite a lot of the um, contributory energy into any of the disasters, uh, like not all of them, not like earthquakes, but the hurricanes and floods and fires, they, they are all intensified. So I wonder what's the best way to change behaviour or, or, or the concept. You know, the journalists have a big responsibility, I think, but what, what other voices do you think need to be heard? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think that's a very good point. That It's true that one of the first steps is questioning the idea of natural disasters, and uh, it, it's very clear to me that that is a concept that we're still needing to move past because uh, if you look at the the academic world and kind of the world of disaster practice and disaster organizations it's actually completely given up on the term natural disasters and has for quite some time there was a, a move in starting in the 1980s to question that and and if you for instance look at United Nations uh, disaster the the disaster agency in the, in the United Nations and a lot of nat- uh, national level Agencies and really any academic journal about disasters, you won't see the term natural disasters used, or if you do, it will be in quotation marks and with some explanation of why they're using it. And, and this was, crucially, I think this was before there was widespread recognition, even in the academic world, of climate change. So this isn't because they realized that humans were causing uh, climate disasters. There are always human decisions that go into what came to be talked about as the uh, the vulnerability context. And so really this uh, changing the conversation to talk about human vulnerability rather than natural hazards was the big move that has happened over past decades in the academic world. And and I think that the kind of world of policy caught up with that as well to some extent, but in the real world <laughs> that uh, that most people live in, the older category of the natural disasters still just makes a lot of sense. And even to not put natural disasters on the cover of our book makes it a little difficult because when somebody asks me what it's about, that's I have to say, well, it's about natural disasters, but we don't really call them that <laughs> because yeah. it's still just the kind of the common sense label that, that uh, everyone knows what comes under that and what you're talking about, even if they know that, that fires are, are a result of forest management practices and that the damage due to fires is a result of how close houses are built and, uh, to that forest and things like that. But, I mean, you give so many tragic examples in your book, for example, in forest fighting in your country where um, budgets have been slashed for forest fighting and they're using prisoners. And I think in one case you had a, talked about a fire where five prisoners who'd been paid a dollar an hour or something to, to fight the fires lost their lives and some of the prison guards also lost their lives. And in Australia also we cut back budgets all the time and when you had a hurricane and Katrina, I remember people talking about how they didn't have the emergency 
services because they'd been deploying people to Iraq. It's this sort of these tragic things and climate is just adding a dimension where we need all hands to the pump. We need everybody to see clearly. As I told you, my Bangladeshi interviewee, he saw it so clearly. He saw the causality. He saw the uh, adaptation needs and, and they were getting rolling up their sleeves and getting up with, on with it. And I feel that our society is just mired in this backward thinking and, and we're preserving old ideas that, that you know, should have gone out with the ark and I just want to know what's the best practice that you see you know which countries are doing well on this and see it clearly especially climate mitigation and adaptation well it is unfortunately right now countries like Bangladesh that really don't have a choice they're they're really at the point where they have to act now and uh, they've are kind of forced into it. So uh, I think while they do have a great approach, it's unfortunate that they can't really, they don't really have a choice in the matter. And and so that they are acting in ways that have been very effective, but that's largely because you have, when you have a single disaster, people's interests tend to align and doing things collectively and making big decisions becomes easier often in a lot of ways, at least just acting, basically doing what needs to be done. And when the disasters come closer together, like in Bangladesh, it's also easier to sustain that, I think, because when you have just a single disaster and then nothing for a long time and everyone kind of expects it to be nothing for a long time, then there's a very predictable phase of people coming together, acting to the extent that they can. Yeah, of course, it's it's possible to act and to make big big changes during quiet times when nothing is happening, but it's extraordinarily difficult. And uh, the more people can convince themselves that the consequences are still far off, uh, the harder that is. It's also very different from what I heard from my Bangladeshi scientist because he, he was talking about retreat and in some places where mm. you're going to have these disasters much more frequently because of climate change, we have to consider retreat, retreat from the forest. You can't live there any longer. Um, you know, it's just too costly of human and animal and every other sort of resource to to allow you to have that choice of living in the forest near, right up there in the mm-hmm. trees. And similarly, on the coast, he, he was telling me that they, they will have to be retraining the next generation of people not to be farmers or fishermen because all that land and we gone and or salinated more more the salination rather than land actually disappearing but and they'll be they're building cities in inland cities where these people will have to be relocated and they're having to lift their education levels all the time lifting the education so they'll have jobs in the non-fishing and non-agriculture sense that was you know but it was forward planning and he was definitely considering retreat which in Australia we, we don't yet consider that and uh, I think we need to we need to be more adult about it and and more um, compassionate to the next door countries because like in Australia our emissions are impacting on Pacific Islands on local, you know, we, we can see these neighbour, in our region, neighbour countries that, that are really uh, facing extinction, <laughs> the whole islands disappearing and, uh, and and we go our merry way digging up new coal mines. So I'd like to thank you very much for talking to us today, uh, Paul it was a really long interview but very comprehensive and I hope people read your book uh, Paul isn't anthropologist and his book is called How the World Breaks. Uh, who's the publisher, Paul? The publisher is uh, the New Press in the US and uh, I don't think they have a publisher in Australia but I'm sure it's uh, available. It is available, that's right, they told me it is. So that's Paul Cox and his book is How the World Breaks. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Thanks to Vivian Langford and to our guest, Dan Cox, author of Any Way You Slice It, about carbon rations, and his son, Paul Cox, who co-authored it with his father, a book on disasters called How the World Breaks. The Bangladeshi woman's song was by Makbul Chaudhari. We also heard David Rovick singing East Tent, East Tennessee, and we will hear Yermo Marika and Shane Howard with Spirit of Place just after the outro. Australia have tripled the emissions each year of anyone living in the UK or China. So send us your ideas. We are responsible for 25 metric tonnes of CO2 each year. The UK admits 8 tonnes per person, and Bangladesh only admits 1 metric tonne per person. As Dr. Huck said to us a few weeks ago, climate disruption is not a victimless crime. Please send us an email at radioteam at bze.org.au if you know anyone or someone who is working on schemes to raise awareness of our carbon footprint. Thanks again and good night.